Welcome back to Superstructure. How are we all doing? You know, pretty good. It's been uh, it's been a couple weeks, I think, since we put out an episode, but Superstructure is still going strong. Put out some good tweets, though. Oh, yeah. Some great content and probably some paywalled tweets for Patreon fans. I love how Will's like immediate is like, things are good, except for the fact you've been taking too long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just called self-care. You know, it's job guarantee stuff. It's the it's really the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Who's that, everyone? <laughs> um, so as you might have noticed, we are joined by a fourth uh a fourth podcaster today, a guest this time, Ian from Twitter. Welcome, Ian, at TweetBoxian. Thank you very much for having Superstructure me. Superstructure got a stepdad. That's why the voice is so deep. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stepfather factory. Right. Marx was dead. Now, I mean, I'm not going to take his place, but, you know. <laughs> I just love my stepdad. <laughs> <laughs> more like a friend right it's not not really i don't want to replace your father i just want to be your buddy. whatever you want to call it i'm just gonna be showing up for the podcast now and i'm gonna be uh you know talking to your mom a lot um anyway all right so leaving one sort of psychosexual fantasy for another um you guys <laughs> i never leave those that's not advisable. You keep them all. Like little collectibles. We also have Dasha Nekrasova in the studio. Yeah. Thank you. We, we don't let her leave the studio. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She locks herself Excuse in. Excuse you. Excuse you, bitch. <laughs> well, she leaves for mass, and that's it. Then she comes back. This has been an unfair start. <laughs> But no, speaking of uh, speaking of leaving for maths, uh, Max, what do we have for today? So we're going to start with what one might call a framing reading of sorts from the one and only uh, superstructure veteran, Liz Brunig, writing in the paper of record, the New York Times. And um, what we're going to tap into here was a fun uh, op-ed uh, last August about uh, the toppling of statues during the BLM uprising in the wake of George Floyd's murder by police. And um, as you might imagine from that confluence of topics, uh, things go rather awry quite quickly. Um, but we're going to dig in now and just going to let let some of this meat fall off the bone for you. Oh, my goodness. Is that what you just said? Is that what you just said? The meat fall off the bone? Like, I just love metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it's a nice barbecue. It's happened for a long time. I don't see the problem. <laughs> um, That's why we invited Ian, you know? <laughs> I mean, as... As a socialist, I'm extremely happy that uh, that we have one of our own now inside and the New York Times. That's right. Uh, so, you know, this is huge for the left that we have Liz Brunig. It's an inside-outside strategy. That's right. A, a sort of an ivory tower for the superstructure when it comes to the journalistic enterprise of facile opinion pieces. Um, That's what I tell everyone. You need to go inside, outside, inside, outside. 
The New York Times is is a site of <laughs> of contestation. L- Liz Brunig is basically like a dictatorship of the proletariat there. Right. <laughs> um, we actually do believe that it's important to convince libs of good things on this podcast, but we do. Um, but uh, that's uh, we'll, we'll see where where this piece falls. So. This, yeah, and and who who Liz is trying to convince? That's right. <laughs> through um, this piece. So this is uh, uh, titled "A Saint Sins," which already off to a fantastic start. It's but... a autobiographical for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely allegorizing, uh, which is a literary term for self projection. Um, love metaphor. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the subhead is in California, protesters have toppled statues of Junipero Serra, whose missions brutalized Native Americans. Junipero Serra. See, okay. Um, how should we think of him now? So I feel like the first sentence kind of kind of says how we should feel about him. <laughs> Poorly. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should read the two sentences again. <laughs> In California, protesters have toppled statues of Junipero Serra, whose missions brutalized Native Americans. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I think right. the how first should thing, we think of him now? Yeah, the very first thing is, you know, protesters, you probably have a point, especially considering the context of when this was published. But then, really, if, you, if any kind of confusion for that point, really the, the next clause just sends it right on home. Not much more. <laughs> so, right, she writes that the reason why the protesters attacked the statues was because um, they believe he, quote, eagerly participated in the conquest of North America, including the torture, enslavement, and murder of some of the Native Americans he intended to convert. So, um, again, you know. Pretty clear, I think. Um, well, you know, but he also did so much charity work <laughs> that it's really hard to like. Well, the first thing you have to do is: were the protesters lying? Right, that's the first question. Were were <laughs> they just uh, maligning the name of this good saint? Look, stop being so definitive. All right, let's hear let's hear her out. So, she writes: because Father Serra has become a contested property in the cultural culture wars and thus been declared either flawless or irredeemable for reasons that have more to do with current events than colonial history, I thought the issue they raised was worth addressing. So this is one of those instances where it's like, you know, I'm going to paraphrase Will, but the meme that's like, nobody, nobody, nobody. Liz Brunig, maybe we should forgive this colonial murderer. Yeah. Now they're trying to cancel colonialism. <laughs> what, you know, what is the left going to do next? You know, much like Christopher <laughs> Columbus, uh, this guy is completely without blame. So, <laughs> you know, look, I think the word she would use, which she does use, is this is perhaps a thornier situation than some mm-hmm. are making it out to be. Just like, you know, thorns, Jesus. Come on. This is, this is powerful stuff. So, you know, she goes on to keep suggesting how, like, you know, in her credit, she's being quite open about the fact that, yeah, he did kill a bunch of people and believe strongly that corporeal punishment was an integral part of the California mission system and that, and the discipline and control of Native peoples and, 
you know, we could. You don't like corporal punishment? One could go on. Um, Max, it's the dialectic, right? I mean, you have the flawless on one side, the irredeemable use of corporal punishment against people living in their own homes on the other side. And really, it's somewhere in the middle. And then current events. Um, (laughs) Current events, completely unrelated. Yeah. Um, So later on, she, you know, she, she offers some, some of the, perhaps some of his more redeeming qualities. She writes, but Father Sarah believed the clergy not the secular Spanish authorities, should administer these punishments, in part because he felt that the Spanish soldiers were too brutal. Leaving such things to the soldiers and other secular powers had led to, quote, the worst of evils, unquote, he told royal authorities in the long list of demands on behalf of his missions and their residence in 1773. It is implied in his letter that those abuses included sexual assault, which clearly horrified him. Clearly, Um, clearly, clearly clearly horrified him. So, you know, you get the point, right? We need asexual assault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, man. Oh, boy. Um, So, you know, Liz Brunig goes on to write, it's not possible to say whether Father Sarah would have been canonized had a fuller historical picture been presented. Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> and I mean, for this, right, it's, it's, I think, really important to realize that he was canonized in 2015 um, <laughs> by Pope Francis, right? Yeah, Look. he was beatified by Pope John Paul. Um, and, you know, nobody can say anything bad about Pope John Paul because everything he did was right. But yeah. Pope Francis... Like, yeah, that's so true. Currently. That's an important point to get in there. Yeah. If you know your history at all, you know that we were ambivalent about whether colonialism was good or bad until 2016. Right, exactly. Right. So there's there's no way that... Right. Yeah. I mean, there had been no such thing as, you know, critical historical studies. There had been no look into anything alongside the colonial project. Nobody had known what happened to any of the indigenous peoples in North America in 2015. What about 1988? Does it go in reverse in the 19th? Speaking of which, I wanted to shout out a recent Money on the Left episode uh, where we interviewed Julia McClure, a historian of Franciscan history influence. There's obviously a direct link not only to you know her book, which is The Franciscan Invention of the New World, which mm-hmm. directly applies here, but then also as we sort of ask her about in the interview, the relationship the Franciscans have to money and this vehement rejection, which ends up being a sort of mediated adoption of money and like what we could call the coming of a coming of capitalism. But that's a long little digression that I think will help situate the way we work out of this text into some other more policy oriented discussions. But before we do that... I don't like policy. <laughs> well, <laughs> neither, neither does Liz, but that's why there's another Brunig who we're going to um, get to later. But, uh... <laughs> I'm not Liz, but okay. Um, She's my friend-ish. We like each other's Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't go too far. It's kind of a one-way street. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, that's called a view. Um, so she concludes the article... With a bizarre paragraph that reads, Father Sarah would have been among the first to admit he had sinned, having had, according to 
Dr. Hackle, a routine of frequent self-flagellation. And yet he it's is still like a saint. It's like Fifty Shades of Catholic. <laughs> it's um, the uh, albino guy from the movie with uh, Tom Hanks, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah, the Da Vinci Code. Um, and the uh, Ordo uh, whatever it is that um, Steve Bannon is a member of. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like Opus, Opus Dei. Opus Dei, stuff, that's right? the one. I've played Assassin's Creed. Right. Um, yeah. And they're connected to the uh, the women's group that the new uh, Supreme Court justice is a part of. Ooh, fun! Yeah. The one that um, the one that Liz Bruning wrote a column, sort of weirdly defending. Oh, I didn't know that one. That's yep. That's, that's a little fun fact. Yep. Um, you can just assume it exists. You know. Yeah. This is called this is called creation out of nothing. Uh, it's called it solidarity, and it's there among the Catholics. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, so. So given, you know, all of these, the sinning and his self-adulation, she writes, and yet he is still a saint. Checkmate, indigenous people. That's right. He's a saint. <laughs> so, oh. quoting here, she writes, if conservatives can find some place for the moral complexity of a man like Father Sarah, then I hope they can do the same for the racial justice movement that has been associated in some cases with attacks on his image. Catholics should know better than to let imperfections harden their hearts. Jesus Christ. <sighs> so if if you think about it, Black Lives Matter is a lot like genocide. Uh, is a lot yeah, it's a lot like the original colonization of California by genocidal Catholics from Spain. What does she even mean? I don't even understand the quote. It's so it's it's a really weird kind of maneuver right because i think that if you pressed her she would maybe see it as a historical matter any particularly bad thing but ultimately if you follow that back as far as it goes you end up at well we're all sinners and so since we're all sinners right we all can't you know you can't you can't swing a dead cat without doing colonialism you know it's impossible did you william did you did you sin last night because i did <laughs> one question i have for liz though is so in this analogy was yeah. the blm movement also uh, endorsed by two different popes. <laughs> There's even two popes right now that could endorse it, right? So it's not even like a crazy thing, right? There's like there's the 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 Nazi kid Diddler, and then there's the other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Diddler and that other guy, yeah. <laughs> someone. Well, the, the the Christian right in America is is actually really fond of saying that whenever a black person is killed by police, they were no saint. Right, right. They specifically were worse than Father Sarah. Yeah, so so actually Liz is being really generous. William, they're saying all lives matter. Like, they're not a saint because we're all sinners, especially some of us. And all sinners matter. But like, you know, it's all the same. Like, like life is just a yeah. flat plane. I think there's two important questions here, right? So obviously there's the all sinners matter, which is literally what mm -hmm. she's saying. Um, yep. That's so true. Which, Thank you. Which <laughs> I think we're going to get into in a second, but has this sort of sense of this sort of like flat, equal social common denominator sense of our moral existence. So that's the one point. But I also think it's worth rec like really reflecting for a second on what her audience is for this. She's talking to Catholics, right? Yeah. She's talking to Catholics and saying, you need to see these sinners blm for the saints that they are because we're all sinners look even your saints are sinners right 
But I think there's something more important in who she's speaking to than necessarily the just heinously disgusting uh, like content of what she's writing, which is, it seems like she's trying to make inroads with a Catholic right mm-hmm. in the U.S. to try and cultivate a sort of, I mean, similar to what Red Scare does, right? Populist, red, right, left, red, brown coalition of... Nobody's perfect. Some people do genocide. Some people do white supremacy. Nobody's perfect. Some people protest police murders. But we can all come together and um, pass policies that encourage you to have babies. I mean, it, it reminds me of the, you know, we can all support free speech to to flatten the distinctions between people who are structurally in oppressive positions and absolve people of accountability for any of their actual actions. So what's their strategy? Like, what's the reasoning for what, like, like to themselves and in reality, like what is their supposed left thesis of like reaching these Catholics? For that, actually, I would quickly quote another piece from Liz, which is on uh, St. Augustine, um, which I actually don't want to read in length because to do so, we'd have to talk about Augustine. Can, can and... I tell a quick anecdote? That it's yeah, gonna, please. Like, it's going to totally like make me look ridiculous. But um, <laughs> no. I, I, I remember like when I was like probably like 14 and I, I like, you know, upper middle class, you know, tennis. And I was in Michigan playing tennis and I was like stressed and I was like 14. And I remember like at changeovers, I was reading Augustine's confessions and like literally my parents put me in therapy, like just for that. They were like, you've lost your fucking mind. And they were probably right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's like too much information about me. I don't know if I should say that stuff about class and everything in tennis, but I don't know. But that, all of that is just in line with what Liz talks about in her autobiographical (laughs) portion of that piece. So like, yeah, there's that. You'll probably commune with that piece really well. People can either end up like you or they can end up like, like Liz in that situation and we're not doing a podcast with Liz right now. Look, so you, you can know. you can either be um a New York Times opinion writer or uh an underground <laughs> leftist who is famous in the New Republic for smoking pot. So honestly, which sounds better? Which sounds yeah. less sexually repressed? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Max, not right now. So I can't just change also, it to Liz. I can't. Yeah. I, I think you're mischaracterizing. Liz is an underground leftist who's a New York Times columnist, uh, which is why it's such a big win for the left. But anyway. But also, um, the, a part of this strategy, too, I mean, like, she literally tweeted at Josh Hawley and was like, right. you know, like, yeah, endorse the plan. family fun pack. Yeah, look at the yeah. family fun pack. And like, yeah. you know. It's the, it's the Matt Stoller strategy, right? It's the same strategy, and not just the um, not, not just the tweets out to him, not just the um, the liking Roger, but also like in the piece in the Augustinian piece that we'll talk about, she like sends heart emojis to Ross Duthau, essentially, right? Um, <laughs> like you know, so <laughs> she's making these overtures to the non-Catholic left or to the non-left Catholics, like you like you said. You know what this reminds me of? It's like. She's a great example of what, like, we would have if we had a sort of 
reactionary liberalism like they do in the UK. Of uh, the uh, turf factory? Yeah, the sort of, exactly, this sort of liberal turf factory that is um, the UK. <laughs> factory floor, bitch. <laughs> the point of production, At, the point of yeah, turf production. Yeah, organizing um, on the turf factory floor. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but since for a, lo- a myriad social, cultural reasons, we've diverged in some ways... Uh, from the UK in that regard, there is this sort of anti-abortion kind of liberal Christian sort of center left that doesn't really exist that she's trying to open up and occupy. And it it is an interesting, you know, sociocultural political phenomenon that I think is worth paying attention to. And I think that's why we're bringing it up as well as how it ties into the, the wider picture of our critique, not only of Franciscanism, but of uh, social democracy and this sense of a lowest common denominator um, being that which universally defines everyone in the way that she's clearly suggesting is based on you're all sinners. You should self-flagellate and hate yourself, but it's okay because God loves you and you're a saint and we can have... Um, universal basic forgiveness. Universal basic forgiveness only if you uh, really want to have children. <laughs> we all are just sinners who can't do anything without hurting each other. And so already our interdependence on each other is actually an entanglement of we're all hurting each other. We're all taking each other's resources. We're all harming each other with our own existence. And that creates a situation where you need to just push down those negative feelings and go for this, you know, just flat, you know, quote unquote forgiveness. But of course, it's not really forgiveness uh, or it's not really accountability. Right. Right. Or it's it's not it's not anything that's productive. It's just you owe it to everybody who is nasty in this world to like, you know, kind of be quiet. But that's the word. Oh, that's the word. Cause they see it as your obligation to forgive. So that's not really forgiveness. Well, right. Exactly. And it's like, you know, it reminds me of what Obama did with the torture stuff. You know, you put it in the past. Sometimes we do crimes against humanity. Sometimes we do genocide. Um, but you know, if we started opening up this box of crimes, like this, there'll be no one left standing, right? That's the argument when that's yeah. clearly this sort of equivocation that is, it's a violent on its own terms, right? Yeah, and it's and it's because they can only envision recognizing that harm has been done in the past as like the only way to remedy that is to destroy whoever committed the harm, right? So, so if acknowledging that means people have to be shut out of society, uh, then you end up with this false dichotomy of like you either do that and it's a slippery slope to you know everybody being canceled, um, or you just flatten everything into we're all sinners, we all you know kind of do bad things, but that's okay because we're all that we have. So another thing about it, right, is that it ties in very well with your episode with Dan Berger, um, where what this is is exactly the 
mentality of carcerality, right? There is no right. no potential for actual abolition here. Everything starts from, oh, okay, so if you have transgressed, then you will be punished, and then the only way to get away from that is perhaps forgiveness or something like that, but then that has to come through this mystical process and go on from there. Um, and there is no actual place for any kind of legitimate abolitionism, which means that then the door can never be closed and everyone starts to become complicit in these crimes of genocide when no father Sarah did genocide that and like he should be held to account for that and shouldn't be canonized and the BLM protests are not at all equivalent it's a it's it's a completely false equivalency to make this um, and in a way, while it's a different tradition and it's a different group of people and it's a different time that, that is being written to, she is writing to MLK's white moderates, the exact people that he wrote about in the Birmingham jail when he says, hey, these people, they suck so bad because they stop us moving forward because they pretend to care. They pretend to have all of these feelings, but they won't let themselves move past it and stand in a place of justice. And she's writing to all of these same kind of type people to the same attitudes and trying to bring them in when the first thing that has to happen is a reconciliation because without a reconciliation, you can't actually have any of that forgiveness and you can't actually have the abolition um, that you need. And so like she's stuck in this carceral mentality. Yeah. And you know, the, um, what we'll get to reading later, we mentioned the family fun pack, which is Matt Brunig's policy paper that is sort of, it's, it basically is like a Marshall plan for nuclear families. (laughs) Uh, I guess you could say um, that, you know, I, I mean, it, it basically is sort of their policy platform, which is, you know, kind of lifted loosely from this or that Scandinavian country. But it's it's framed as a redistribution from the rich to the poor, which they equate with from small families and people who don't have kids to nuclear families and people who do have kids. But the fundamental premise, right, is that in order for something good to happen, you need to have a group that's being punished and that's being othered. I mean, this is why we're so critical of articulations of left-wing political programs that flatten everything just to redistribution of what we decided to create yesterday, (laughs) right? Because what we decided to create yesterday is definitionally like not going to be enough for today and certainly not for a future if we want to have any agency over transforming and junipuro serra is not enough like that's like you know most people die and live medium lives and that's it and like you we don't that's a conservative view of history to be worried about our idols and having to protect them right like we can't go on living somehow if we don't have them one way or another like that's a total fetish and that's a conservative mentality like we need to tax the saints and the past you know (laughs) (laughs) no it totally is like that she's basically she's arguing against expropriating this property right like she she really calls it a property um at the beginning that that has now become implicated in the culture wars which means that you know the culture wars now are being reframed as a distributional conflict over culture like it's just so weird i i hear you will i hear you natty i hear you dad (laughs) um 
But I don't want to live in a world where my sons, who might post a racist TikTok or two, can't be canonized saints in the Catholic Church. So, um, Wait, let's see what Augustine said. What did he say? He might have something helpful. He had five million words to, to write on it. So really, if he didn't, it's on him. Well, the St. Augustine quote that uh, that I wanted to read, not a quote from St. Augustine, but from Liz's long reflection that was eerily simple. Our yeah, era is St. Was... Augustine, though. I mean, let's be let's be fair. Liz is... <laughs> well, no, from uh, from Liz's long personal essay, which was weirdly eerily similar to Natty's upbringing. Um, it's not my upbringing. She didn't get put in therapy. <laughs> it was just a she moment. She didn't get put in therapy. That's true. <laughs> right. Her parents didn't recognize something was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> she got put in confession yeah she didn't go to therapy um <laughs> so she is writing in a magazine called america the jesuit review right so this is um left-wing magazine a left-wing insofar <laughs> as she's writing this column it's a left-wing yeah. uh christian magazine so she says One often hears the popular talking point among politically conservative Christians that assistance as administered by the the state is not charity because it is compulsory, an argument meant to refute Christian arguments for state-funded welfare programs. This idea draws from both senses of charity, the antique and the medieval. On the one hand, it suggests that there is no moral imperative for Christians to pursue a robust welfare state because the Bible actually counsels love, something that cannot be coerced. On the other, it seems to accept that the term charity itself denotes the giving of goods, right? So basically, it's not charity because taxes are compulsory and you have to choose, right? Charity comes from your free will. Um, but she says, it is possible to resolve the confusion True, love cannot be coerced. She has tried. (laughs) (laughs) Love cannot be coerced. It it has to be bribed with baked goods left outside the door to the home office. Um, (laughs) Still, it is entirely possible to build political institutions that ensure humane conditions for the least of these out of charity. In that case, the charity is not the transmission of goods to the poor, but in the initiative to create a world where those transmissions reliably take place. It's about access, Will. It's about access to charity. (laughs) You you have to self-sacrifice your time to support a socialism that maybe coincidentally will cause redistribution that you don't want to get your fingerprints on is kind of how I interpret that. I don't know if... Uh... What is her point? I don't understand what her point is. <laughs> so, Sorry. So I've heard this plenty. I'm serious. <laughs> I, I just said, I've, I've heard this plenty from conservative Christians or, f- yeah, from Christians in general, right? And the idea is just that, like, <laughs> hey, we can't... I don't get any plaudits from God for doing something that I'm coerced to do. But it sure would be nice if the system were in place that made it so that it made (laughs) sense for me to do it. And then that's why... So normally, people 
take that and then they say, and this is why we can't have the state provide any kind of benefit. Because if we do, then there's no reason for me to ever give to charity because the charity mm. is already done by the state and they already take care of it through taxes. And so therefore, I, you know, it's disembodied. I'm alienated from my charity, right? Is If they're really smart, <laughs> they'll say that. And that gets them to it's move the, away from it. The MCM circuit. The right. money charity, yeah, you know, money, <laughs> the money charity heaven circuit, you know, if you're yeah, not there. exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so she's so she's talking about this as a like, this is what got her to become a leftist. So the idea of saying, well, what if we lived in a world where it made sense for us to give to charity, and that would then get me into heaven right and what it, like <laughs> yeah what it is is you have to make sure that we maximize our utility according to preferences that have to be shaped into a pareto optimal structure of charitable distribution um i'm just still which i think we're gonna get into i'm just still confused because like what i took from augustine was a couple things one he felt guilty about eating the peach or something from a tree that he stole. <laughs> so he stopped being a mannequin. I've seen Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> Two, Augustine was really sad mommy died. Um, yeah, he was very sad. About and that. so I don't know like what, I don't know what my point is right now. I guess I'm just saying like we taxed the peach tree. We taxed mommy and it's like I still at the end like felt despair. And then I thought like, you know, that despair is sort of the whole that god fills and then i like was like i mean that in a chaste uh charitable way well what it is is he was in eden <laughs> where he could eat you know where there's all sorts of fruits um and he had eve and so he had mommy she's cute um you know mommy wink um and then <laughs> and then they fell out of uh eden and he lost the peach and um he lost mommy and now he's alone <laughs> Um, but that's when God and the left just come in to save. Yeah, them. intervene right into that situation. Just in that hole in your heart, mm -hmm. so to speak. So, right. So, so we have this world where uh, good acts take the form of self-sacrifice, precisely because they are transmissions in a zero-sum way of goods from the rich to the poor. Right. Um, and so politics then is essentially a distributional question over what's the just distribution of finite goods. Um, and, you know, I mean, I would I would argue it's it's impossible to take the kind of arbitrary privileging of some groups or some lifestyles that's going to be privileged among others because you've literally set up. Uh, politics as a distribution of scarce funds among all of these competing groups and competing interests. And, you know, we see that kind of rear its head when you have the People's Policy Project, which comes out with the family fund pack, which is, right, It's it rhetorically sets up progressive taxation as a redistribution from uh, cosmopolitan households with no kids to traditional households with kids, 
right? Um, and we we have some uh, quotations from that. I just realized that mm. the family fun pack mixed with this colonialist um, Franciscan genocide is exactly what Matt Iglesias's book <laughs> what that, argues for, that argues for a like full like baby production repopulation of the United States <laughs> as a sort of manifest destiny. There needs to be both a baby factory and a turf factory. Oh. I have a question, an important question, which is, um, is the family fun pack not centered on uh, single moms? No. Um. <laughs> it couldn't be less single. I think you knew the answer to that question. No, I mean, there's there's a fascinating uh, graphic in it that tries to visualize uh, all of the... Um, it has two columns, and one column is transfers away from, and another column is transfers toward. And, and it's... The title is Net Transfers Caused by the Family Fun Pack, um, which I just, I love the, I love the, like, the way that it's, that it's phrased, like, you know, like, um, net socialism caused by policy. <laughs> um, you know, it has one graphic that is transfers away from smaller families, right, which has a single person towards larger families, which is a man, a woman, and a little boy and a little girl. Uh, and then there's older families to younger families, which is a man with a woman who has a little heartbeat in her uterus. Are you claiming that's not how that works? Oh, no, I, I guess that is true. Um, yeah, that's just biology. I, I also recommend listeners, like, actually click into the Family Fun Pack, like, People's Policy Project site and look through it because it is completely bizarre. It's just, like... A bunch of straight couples kissing babies and like baby clothes <laughs> strewn everywhere and like JavaScript animations of like people, you know, a, a woman and a man uh, who are imagined to be assigned female and assigned male at birth. Um, <laughs> just like springing into baby to having babies. And like there are there are literally like little labels that say Poverty if babies didn't exist. Poverty when babies exist. I I just another thing I, in the style guide that he used for this is the break the the section breaks are is a stylized baby walking right or crawling. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that one. Um, Also, the older families graphic, that's definitely Roy, uh, not Roy Cohn, um, Roger Stone uh, in that uh, older families graphic. (laughs) Um, Coming through the poly families as well. (laughs) What's that? Sorry. (laughs) It's when your grandmother is named Polly. Um, Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, you know, just to just to drive home what the kind of the meta framing is here. um, This is a quote. The window for fertility is set by biology, while the distribution of national income is established by people through the creation of economic institutions. I'm sorry. Is national income like. Is that a euphemism for young sperm? Like, uh... <laughs> yes, it's it's net it's net sperm. Masturbation is is like a is like a parasitic taking mm. from national income. It's a small death. Um, That's true. <laughs> um, you're robbing social security when you do that. Yeah, I, I think we need to change this uh, show's name to Sperm Count. 
Um, sperm oh, count. Because we have the fertility sperm count. Uh, we need to have like a sperm ticker, like the national <laughs> debt clock. Yeah. One thing too about the framing that he goes through with this, uh, if I can just add that in, the first problem that he identifies is that, hey, poor families are affected by having kids more than richer families. If you're if you're already poor or a lower class family, then having a kid will not help, right? It is going to just be a large burden yeah. on your finances. Fuck, really? Yeah, like and so like this is the like so that's the first problem. And then he gives you exactly one paragraph to prevent you from from taking that in the obvious eugenic uh, conclusion. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, that's philosophically repugnant. So, you know, don't be a eugenicist. And anyways, moving on. Um, and like, that's it. That's the whole defense about what the logic that he set up, which is that for financial reasons and for the fertility clock reasons, right? That like he is driving a bus towards a place called Eugenics Town. And then he takes an exit that is, well, don't do right. that. Obvious. I mean, it's, it's obvious. You just don't do that. Yeah. All the math that I've laid out says that we're going to Eugenics Town, but I'm taking a right turn. Don't worry about it. It's a left turn, please. I beg to differ. I mean, they, they exculpate with biology, right? And with appeals to, you know, because basically the, the big framing here and the big argument is human beings evolved to have families at at this time and capitalism is incompatible with that so the solution is to redistribute uh income towards the nuclear family unit um in order to bring capitalism in back into alignment with biology mm-hmm. because you know capitalism has you know it's it's just based on the logic of exchange and it's you know and instead of being loyal to a husband a wife is now loyal to a boss at work i mean this is really gross stuff she's not always loyal (laughs) (laughs) instead of the metabolic rift it's uh it's a rift between the man and his nature i.e. the Matt and his Liz. And they're very Christian. I mean, they're very openly, like, Christian about their family ideology. Like, I think to them, it's like, yeah, like, for the left to grow, we need to, like, put our best foot forward, which is, uh, like... the American baby factory. Exactly. Like, you need to have one boy, one girl. One billion sock Hopefully you're Catholic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there's, there's this weird kind of contradiction here because it's like let's just take ideology out of it and just give nuclear families more money yeah there's no alternative if money is finite there's no alternative you know you're targeting things one way or another i have an important question again what happens if like i one of my babies has another daddy and i don't say does that count the same within the like that's sin but i didn't tell him well you probably don't want to say that out loud or you'll... you Right, yeah. In a just Rawlsian society, you could be put in jail for frauding the taxpayer. Um, That's what I thought, thanks. Yeah, don't, don't you dare claim dependents <laughs> that aren't your dependents. Um, 
Well, they're mine, but they're not. Well, anyway. Well, see, then you'd be a single filer for that one child, and that would cause problems <laughs> inside this whole thing, right? Because okay. you get more money as a as a joint filer, not as a single filer. Just, That's the just sub- subscribe to Matt's Patreon. He'll he'll right, figure it out. Right. Um. <laughs> um. One one other thing that I would like to as an anecdote to try to give you guys so uh i you know on my twitter bio i I don't hide the fact that i'm a veteran um and so i am um and uh, this transfer mindset that is right here in this paper um that's also available in the military ubi system for lack of a better word um for the way that that the military handles um child payments right so you get a family credit or a family like allowance or whatever you get uh, additional money on your paycheck for your dependents right so if you're married then you get a little bit extra if you have kids and you start getting more extra and you get more for every kid that you have right and i think it's like a sliding scale down or whatever but regardless right you get the idea now the thing that makes me bring this up is that it's again it's a very transfer minded like focus right or like that's the way that that people consider it they understand it as oh yeah that guy has a bunch of kids specifically to get the government to transfer a whole bunch of money to him and his family and it's not talked about like well, right? They're colloquially called dependas because they're dependas. It's a catchy. Right, catchy, right? Or dependas, right? Um, Lil parasites. Right. And so, like, that's completely how it's understood. It's understood as a parasite. It's understood as a drain on the system. It's understood as people specifically having children in order to chase out and game a system, right? Um, and that's because of this transfer mindset, which is from the left. From, yeah, and that is entirely all over this paper. It is it is the only thing I could read as I read throughout the whole thing, um, especially when he gets into some of the other uh, uh, suggestions. In, uh, in trying to sort of sum up how I feel about this document, I think the phrase that popped into my head, which was the most clear, is facts don't care about your queerings. Um, and, uh, which on this podcast, we certainly know full well, that's the case. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, biologically queer people need less money. Well, right. (laughs) Exactly. Like that is because they don't have kids. Right. Because obviously queer people never have kids, right? They're not contributing by having kids. Yep. Exactly. Look, my semen hasn't worked so far. I don't know what you guys are talking about. You just keep trying, Natty. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, like, there's a reason why these sorts of policy proposals are so inclined to that sort of heteronormative structure. It's because you have to cut off support and funding somewhere, mm-hmm. right? According to this mindset. Yeah. Because we, we're dealing with a finite pie of scarce resources and we need to prioritize and you know right. what of national income right which right. yeah exactly sorry, of national income right so we need to prioritize and so the logic is you know matt bruding looks at his life and says <laughs> before every tweet. yeah okay so here's the here are the boundaries yeah here are the boundaries to what our national priority <laughs> should be um rather than saying we have a non-zero-sum approach to a non-scarcity over a temporal horizon environment, right? Where we can create the money and the resources to include and support everyone, 
right? Not in some weird ex-post national income sense, which again, even as economics, yeah. it makes no sense. Um, no, I and actually just to do like a really small like side comment or, or digression, like national income, that's net investment, right? Like net <laughs> spending in the economy. And to begin with that, this is again, like this is why... MMT matters, right? Because MMT shows you that no, like spending and creating the money is just the prime mover. So looking at national income uh, based on yesterday's spending decisions or, you know, more accurately decisions to kind of defer spending to capitalists who only want to do as much of it as they feel like for, you know, to improve their lives. Um, and then using that as the benchmark for the size of the total pie or something is completely, you know, abdicating our ability. The decision to spend is an inalienably public decision. And that means that national income is a policy variable. But, but will we can solve this problem by just having one billion Americans? So that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need. Yeah. <laughs> um, but importantly, too, right, using national income is de facto reproducing yesterday, right? That's yeah. that's the that's by definition. By definition, yeah. which means you are reproducing the racist heteronormative structures. You know, dare one say genocidal structures to invoke the early reading of yesterday, which is why there are only straight couples in the family fun pack right and and yeah and like there's a link between these two things yeah and and to to show how exactly you're right on this as well right in the setup for it like for the uh for the family that that can handle the burden of all of the stuff right he's like okay what we'll do is we'll take two families and each one makes eighty thousand dollars a year so, oh wait, and and, and what, what are the two family names? I don't even remember. Smith and Jones, maybe. Just to make it a little bit more white picket fence. Right. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, but like the idea, like so, the idea that he's saying there is, he's just like, all right, so like you just start at eighty thousand dollars, and that's it. That's all that. That's all that two people need. That's and we just go from there from four people and everything. And like that's that's, that's, that's a wild. That's the modal thing. income. So I don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Is that not in the Bible? <laughs> right. And it's, it's, so it is just, you know, it's replicating yesteryear. Yep. Replicating yester modernity. Well, and that's why they have this nostalgia too. I mean, for like, you know, this social democracy that depends on the church. Cause like they can't conceive of a world like where you would want to move away from those things. Like whatever you want to say about religion on the left, which is obviously a whole can of worms, like, they're not doing leftist religion. They're doing religion which says, like, if we don't, like, really white-knuckle it and hold on to our traditions, like, we will have nothing. Which I want to actually link this also to our conversation with Matt Chrisman, where when Natty pressed him on what a working-class movement was in history, right, he said the, the British labor movement, right, of the early 20th century, which is exactly the sort of horizon of possibility that we want to crack open. And that's exactly what we're getting here and that's being reproduced, right? That horizon of possibility. And this is where, I mean, you know, the reason why we've 
brought up and brought in and and worked with and 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 learned from abolitionism on this show is because it represents precisely the cracking open of this possibility for transformation. And it is not an accident that Liz Brunig was writing about BLM as sinners, right? To, to begin this episode, right? Because she knows full well that this movement represents the possibility for overcoming this traditional structure that she holds in a sort of dear personal relationship with herself and her family. If I can take this stepdad role again and just, you know, really be incredibly <laughs> obvious with it one more Please. one more time. Right? <laughs> How can you honestly consider yourself a person who can who is truly engaging with modern issues when you say when you look at Sarah and his history and you say, "Oh, you know, what seems to be the most anal- like analogy uh, to this? Oh, I know. It's the BLM protesters, not the police. <laughs> yep. Right. Yep. Like it's just, yeah. and, and it comes down to simply that to to really the indigenous protest. The indigenous people are the black people. It's and, not. You know, we a, did too much corporal punishment. Right. We did. It's not about but... the protesters at the Dakota Pipeline getting sprayed down by the National Guard. Uh, like it, like those are the bad guys, not the National Guard spraying them down in the dead of winter with water so that they can't come back tomorrow. That's, oh, okay. And like when you aren't able to understand uh, that, that Sarah is actually analogous to the force of power in that uh, in that situation, then you have first off you've lost the plot uh and secondly like go read a book right like figure out like stop and think about it uh, and really kind of think about it and because like you're showing your allegiances so strongly in that moment when you're saying oh i know everyone thinks these blm protesters are wrong but nobody cares about the cops just murdering people just left and right for fun um right or or anything like that yeah i mean I'm not really sure we, we we're gonna uh, do any better, I think, than that as far as mm. summing this up. Mm. So I just want to say, beautiful, Ian. Thank you so much for coming on Superstructure. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Thank you. The first time, not the not the last. That's for sure. Thank you very much, Red. Thank you.